What we have to remember is that race is a social construct. We made it up. There's really no such thing as race. We have given certain attributes or taken people's attributes and assigned it to a color. Like black people are this way, white people are that way, Asian people. Okay, that's just crazy. The idea of race is nothing new to the United States. But in this past year, the country has finally begun to explore previously unacknowledged sides of this very personal and controversial topic, police brutality and white supremacy. After the death of George Floyd, activists played a key role in bringing this injustice to light. One such activist is Lisa Borders, who has devoted her life to advocating for others. Growing up in the cradle of the civil rights movement in segregated Georgia, Borders was exposed to some of the highest racial tensions the United States has ever experienced. She moved on to become a prominent activist for women and black people as former president of the WNBA and CEO of Time's Up an organization that supports victims of sexual harassment in the workplace. Today, she sits on multiple boards of trustees and is the founder and CEO of Golden Glow Media. In this episode, we sit down with Lisa Borders to discuss what activism can do for the world. I'm Pete Peterson. And I'm Addie Grace Cook. And this is the Outspoken Leader Podcast. In the 1960s, Lisa Borders was one of the first nine black students to integrate into Westminster Day School, a prominent Atlanta private school. Day to day, I was living in two worlds, a majority institution where black students, African-American students were in the minority. I lived in a black neighborhood in Southwest Atlanta where the black kids didn't want to really have anything to do with me at all because they felt I had betrayed them by going to this different school. So technically living in three in two worlds, but really in no man's land or no woman's land is more what it was like. So survival was really the uh, mantra of the day. I remember just trying to survive every day in class, getting called racial slurs. She and the other eight African-American students were forced to validate themselves at Westminster every single day. We are here, we passed the same exam that you did to enter the school, so our voices should be valued. Borders learned that all voices should be valued from her grandfather, her first role model as an activist. I can remember my grandfather standing outside of that dining room and peacefully protesting. I can remember him protesting to help the first African-American policemen get their jobs in Atlanta. What I remember is that he was speaking up for people who he felt couldn't speak up for themselves. Her grandfather, head pastor at Wheat Street Baptist Church in Atlanta, demonstrated the power and resilience of the black church, whose influence remains strong today. The church has always been central to our beliefs and our values and how we want to operate and behave to one, towards one another, but collectively as well. It was a galvanized space where people could come and hear uh, elected officials or soon-to-be elected officials make their pitch to the community. It was a place where people could gain comfort. Uh, and I still see that today. It is not as prevalent, perhaps, today because there is no one charismatic leader. That's the perception that it's not as 
um, present today, but it is, as I would make the example or give the example of Reverend Wafiel Bornock, who just won one of the U.S. Senate seats from Georgia. He is the senior pastor at MLK's church, Dr. King's church, and he has been there for 15 years. Part of what I think backfired on his opponent is she attacked the black church. She attacked him. She attacked the black church. That you should never even consider doing, but it, because it is still considered a very sacred place, is to help them reach their full potential. As president of the league, I did that from their professional standpoint. And now from a civic perspective, I'm doing exactly the same thing. What does she strive to be in her job? Authentic, candid, and transparent. Those are my guiding principles. What I have realized over time is I have been absolutely an activist by definition. So you've mentioned a lot of examples of activism, but what is activism? How do you define it? So activism, from my perspective, is it's passion turned into action. So I often say that's also the definition of leadership. If you feel something is unjust or wrong, stepping into the breach, into the gap, and uh, raising your voice and saying, this is not acceptable, and here's the way it should be. Standing up, your parents may have taught you, you don't just criticize something. You have to offer a better solution. Uh, so I think it's passion turned into action. But there's a difference between true activism and that which we might see on social media. A trend is something exciting that people are doing and they're happy about it for a discrete amount of time. Activism is a continuum and it carries on until the mission is complete. And as we can see today, it's not complete. Activism is still a necessity in fighting social divides, such as racism. What we have to remember is that race is a social construct. We made it up. There's really no such thing as race. We have given certain attributes or taken people's attributes and assigned it to a color. Like black people are this way, white people are that way, Asian people. Okay, that's just crazy. So we have spent more than a millennium branding people with these attributes and some of the preconceived notions are absolutely negative and absolutely incorrect. It starts with family, but think about this. People didn't come into the world with racial thoughts. They were taught those thoughts and it was ignorance. Now there's a difference between ignorance and stupidity. Ignorance means you have not been exposed to, uh, stupidity means you cannot process information. These people were not stupid. They were in a very excellent school and they, we all worked at an accelerated pace. So nobody was stupid, but a whole lot of people were ignorant. They had not been exposed to anyone besides their individual community. Without exposure, they conjured up all these notions in their mind. Now their parents taught them that. When they came to school, they projected that onto me and the other black students. Even without her unique childhood experiences in the 1960s, Borders believes she would have followed the same path today. I think if I were born in the 21st century, I would still be called to be an activist, to be socially engaged, to always ensure that everyone reaches their full potential. 
I didn't always call myself an activist. I called myself a fixer. I was always fixing broken things, whether it was in my family or whether it was in my job or whether it was with a friend. I was always trying to fix something. Throughout generations, leaders have been drawn to this need for fixing the unjust. Activism has been enduring. Unfortunately, we are still having the same conversation uh, about civil rights. The fact of the matter is we changed the law and it is said it is unlawful to discriminate. It is unlawful to do this. It is lawful for everyone to have the right to vote. So what happened, I think, we changed the laws, but we didn't necessarily change the hearts and minds of everybody. So it is very difficult to legislate behavior. You can start there, but you have to extend beyond that. What is the best way to change hearts and minds? The way to change hearts and minds, Addie Grace, I think is one-on-one -on -one conversations, as difficult and as messy and as inefficient as that sounds. Having conversations and putting a face on whatever per is perceived to be the problem typically diffuses all of the emotion. What we're exhibiting today is fear. It is based purely on not being exposed to one another, not understanding one another, and being afraid of one another. Here's what I was taught as a little girl. My grandfather said fear stood for false evidence appearing real. F-E-A-R, false evidence appearing real. So the notion that black people are scary or all white people are mean. So unless I take the time to get to know and understand and walk in one another's shoes, we're never going to get it. And we're going to stay on this destructive path. Do the ends always justify the means? The ends do not always justify the means. If that were the case, all the extreme behavior, whether it's on the left or right or anywhere in between, people get hurt. We've got to have a conversation with ourselves in the U.S. to redefine what is freedom of speech and where are the guardrails? Do you ask a really good question? Because those folks felt unheard does not give them license to kill their fellow Americans. So that's what we do when we only listen to one network and we sit in an echo chamber and only listen to people who agree with us. Once again, that keeps you from having the perspective of what's happening outside of your bubble. And if you don't have all of the information, how in the world can you make an educated or an intelligent, let alone an enlightened decision? If we would take a moment to step back and breathe and figure out how we can disagree without being disagreeable, there's a whole lot of progress in that approach. When can this progress be defined as successful enough? For Lisa Borders, the work is never done because her measure of success is a perfect world. And if I could work my way out of the moniker of activist and as we all could, we would be doing the Snoopy dance and singing hallelujah because all the problems would be solved. There would be equity, there would be equality. People would be reaching their full potential without systemic barriers in front of them to prevent them from reaching their full potential. This effort requires leaders who will dedicate their lives to this purpose. So we asked our signature question, how do leaders find their purpose? You know, I think they have to dig deep when they are trying to find their purpose 
I have noted that many leaders have gone through some adverse circumstance and typically you either succumb to it or you overcome it. If you succumb to it, you don't become a leader in that space because it doesn't turn into the passion that lights the fire that gets you up every morning. And I think this is what happens to most leaders is they go through something that awakens them. It opens their eyes to whatever circumstance that they have overcome. And they end up picking up the baton of leadership because they've listened, hopefully learned, and are ready to lead. So I think you have to dig deep though so that it doesn't kill you. It makes you stronger and enables, empowers, and encourages you to take the mantle of leadership and run with that baton as fast as you can. So I would say start with yourself, understanding what is important and what you value, and then how do you manifest that on a daily basis? Your behavior is what guides whether you are an activist, whether you are a good person, or whether you are thinking only about yourself. So really it's about understanding you and manifesting that outward. Is there any time that you have any regrets about not standing up for someone or something? Um, no, I don't have any regrets. What I realized, if I didn't stand up at a particular time 10 years ago, 15 years ago, it's because I wasn't equipped to do so. When I look back over my life and what I've been able to do, I'm not saying it was perfect by any stretch of the imagination, but everything happened exactly the way it was supposed to, the good, the bad, and the ugly. What I am always hopeful about, Addie Grace, is that I learned from each and every situation and you take that information and you become more reflective and more responsive. We want to thank Lisa Borders for this amazing opportunity and a big thanks to our listeners. I'm Pete Peterson. And I'm Addie Grace Cook. And this is The Outspoken Leader.